This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal-Ramos, and I am one of the hosts here on the channel. And I recently spoke with Ian M. Miller about his new book, Fur and Empire, The Transformation of Forests in Early Modern China. This came out in 2020 with the University of Washington Press. And this is a book I have come to think of as being important for two different reasons. The first has to do with big, narrative-shaping, field-shifting reasons. This book offers a new take on China's early modern forest history, which is traditionally and currently dominated by the narrative of deforestation, the disappearance of China's naturally occurring forests, which, so the standard narrative tells us, led to long-term environmental dysfunction and crisis in the 19th century. This book revises this, revealing instead China's long history of forest oversight. It shows how China developed not European-style forestry bureaus, but instead other institutions with jurisdiction over wood and woodlands. Chinese states may have minimized direct oversight, but the focus on taxing and regulating private commerce and timber led to the rise of timber plantations, which kept forests and various building projects pretty well stocked with trees and timber, at least until novel pressures in the 19th century caused the functioning forest system to collapse. This book then not only calls for a shift in how we view China's environmental history, but also offers a different model of forest management, a non-European model, to global environmental history more broadly. But setting aside these, you know, big narrative shaping, field shifting aspects of the book, this book is also really important because it tells the history of China's early modern forest management on the ground, as it were. There are some fascinating chapters in this book that look at what it meant for actual people to work out how to maximize profits and minimize risks and draw up contracts to establish who owned what shares of which forest. And I know, Contracts and legal documents might not sound fascinating, but trust me, Ian makes them so. There is another really great chapter that I just want to flag here on imperial logging, and I'll just note here that the lengths that both the Imperial Center and indigenous and Han groups in border areas went to in order to get large trees, something that we get into in the podcast, are simply mind-boggling. So while this is an important, narrative-changing, field-shifting book, the attention paid here to paperwork and bureaucracy and, you know, just the lived experience of those engaged in forest management was a real treat to read and to talk to Ian M. Miller about. And I'll just highlight two things to listen out for as you turn to our conversation. Ian's discussion of what it meant, looked like, and felt to follow a tree through gazetteers and just how exciting seemingly mundane contracts can be. With that, I hope you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Ian M. Miller to talk about his new book, Fur and Empire, The Transformation of Forests in Early Modern China. Welcome to the New Books Network, Ian, and thank you so much for taking the time with all that is going on and all that I'm sure you have going on to talk with me today. Hi, Sarah. Um, Thanks so much for having me. And really, I see this as something of a respite from everything else that's going on. Um, it's always fun to talk about this work. 
Glad to hear it. Uh, so, Ian, we're going to start, as this podcast usually does at the beginning, uh, with your beginning. So how did you come to work on early modern China? And with this book in particular, uh, the environmental history of early modern China? So I, I guess I came to history and Chinese history and early modern Chinese history all somewhat by accident. Um, I think that my, my first Chinese history teacher, Lillian Lee at Swarthmore, was really instrumental in guiding me down this path. Um, and I arrived at Harvard um, for a master's, not 100% sure what I wanted to do, um, but I ended up liking my history classes and especially my early modern history classes the most. Um, and this project and my interest in environmental history um, really started with reading The Retreat of the Elephants. Um, and I actually can't remember if I read it for um, Michael Sony's Late Imperial China class or if I read it sort of on the side, but I ended up getting in a dis- very extended discussion um, about it um, with with my good friend, John Lee, um, and both of us are still um, working on these sort of forest projects. He works on Korea um, and, and it just sort of started with that and I, I've never really been able to put it down. Great, so I mean, I, Thank you very much for mentioning uh, that work in particular, uh, and I definitely want to come back to not just that work that you mentioned, um, but you know, China's in the history of the environmental history of China as a whole. Uh, but before we go there, um, this book, the one we're talking about for an empire, comes um, as you sort of hinted at there out of your dissertation work, out of your dissertation project. But of course, this project has changed a lot since it was a dissertation. Uh, I went back and had to look at your dissertation and this book that I have with me here at my desk looks quite different. Um, So can you actually talk a little bit about that process for you of taking your dissertation and turning it into a book? What did that look like and what was important to you as you shaped that dissertation into the book? So as I think I talk a little bit about in the conclusion, actually, I came to this project interested basically in the prehistory of the 19th century social and ecological crises. Um, and so I went into the field, um, sort of interested in studying those, and I had a little bit of a sense um, that the forest history of China was going to be a little bit different than what I was reading in a European context, but I really didn't know exactly what I was going to find. And I ended up going down um, a very long and very interesting um, sort of black hole um, of lineage studies, which is the core of the dissertation. And the last two chapters of the dissertation are where I really got back to this environmental history piece, which is what I had wanted to to talk about. And so um, then after I graduated, um, and especially during a postdoc that I did at Yale Agrarian Studies um, and also during some time at Max Planck in, um, in Berlin, I had some more time to think about it and to really develop the environmental history piece a bit more. And what I realized was that there were really um, sort of two um, environmental history stories that I wanted to tell. And one was the story of grave forests, um, which I have set aside and is probably going to end up being um, a big piece of my second book. Um, but the other was the story of essentially state forest oversight and commercial forestry, which is what grew into this book. Um, and as you said, you know, there was a lot more work that had to be done on that to turn it into a finished product. Um, and in some ways, the reason that I ended up doing that work first is because I felt like it was an important background that I needed to understand to to think about the context around grave forests and forest and sort of like protected forests. Um, but it ended up being much more interesting than just sort of a background um, to that other study. Um, and in particular, I, I figured out some um, some things about just how early. Um, the development of some of these forestry institutions was and some really striking contrasts um, as well as confluences 
with um, what's maybe the more familiar story of the development of forestry in early modern Europe and in Japan. Perfect. So I think you've set us up really nicely there, actually, uh, to talk about the comparative aspects of this book, uh, even really before we get into talking about the main argument. So I think it's worth uh, talking about this here. Um, and, I, you know, the, this book is not a uh, an explicitly or, you know, uh, it's not a comparative study of China and Germany. It's not a comparative, it's not that kind of comparative work, but it definitely has, and as you've just hinted at there, comparative elements. Uh, because as you point out uh, in the introduction in particular, the European experience is ancestral to our contemporary understandings of forest. And just to, you know, lay out the barest outline of what this European experience looks like with the huge huge caveat that you make in the book as well, that there is no single European forestry. Uh, the European story of forests uh, is a bureaucratic one with European states expanding their bureaucracies to oversee domestic forests and colonizing abroad to expand their timber supplies, which looks very different to the Chinese case that you explore in this book. As you say in the book, China did not produce European style forestry bureaus until the 20th century, although it did develop other institutions with jurisdiction over wood and woodlands. Um, but in thinking about comparison, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Why, you know, why did you decide to bring this comparative um, piece to your book? Uh, and what is, it, what is important for listeners to know about this comparison um, in order to sort of go further into the book itself? So I came to do a moderate amount of reading on European forestry in particular, to try to better understand what was going on in the Chinese context. Um, and um, one of the patterns that we see in forest history, um, in I guess the historiography, is that there's sort of a first generation of scholarship that's very focused on the deforestation question, um, much like uh, Mark Elvin's work has been. And when I wanted to get beyond that and away from that, I found myself um, reading things like Joachim Radkow and Paul Ward um, and Keiko Madison um, and some other works on, on European forestry that were moving beyond the deforestation paradigm. And so that, um, that work was very implicit in my understanding. Um, and so then I guess... At many stages of the project, I, I found myself trying to explain why China looked so different. And then at another stage, I guess I realized that in some ways, um, it was equally important to explain the developments in China on their own terms. Um, and so I didn't want to make it explicitly a comparative work, but that comparison was always sort of in the back of my mind. The other thing that occurred to me, um, especially in conversation with my editors in writing the introduction, is that the European and North American models of forestry, even just that language of forestry, is um, so much behind our intuitive understandings of what a forest is, what forest oversight should look like, um, and and things like this. And so I realized that a lot of the reason why this story that I, I told in For an Empire had not been fully told before was that people were overlooking things that were forest administration, that were over, forms of oversight, um, because they didn't map directly onto the vocabularies or the institutional mechanisms seen in Europe. And so I had to, I think, for my audience, um, for the reader, explain that very clearly because um, it would help them contextualize the work as well, at least for, for a readership um, in Europe or North America. Absolutely. I love that you said in your answer there that, you know, there were things in China that were forest oversight. Um, and I love that you said that just because so much of this book uh, is taken up with detailing what that oversight looks like. And I think that it would be pretty hard to come away having read, you know, some of the, the middle chapters of the book. I'm thinking of chapters sort of two through five here uh, without, uh, you know, noticing that really what you're talking about is forced 
forced oversight of. We're, we'll get to those chapters in a minute, but there's so much detail there about uh, how you know forests are being managed um, and overseen. Uh, so thank you for teasing that out a little bit. Um, with that and with sort of that comparative piece, why don't we move into a little bit further into the book itself? Um, because for an empire, as you know, we've already touched on here, is an environmental history focusing on China's early modern forest history. And I'm not quite sure how you managed to do this, Ian, but this is a book that is both you know, sweeping, it stretches uh, from forest oversight of, in China's early empires, even the Qin and the Han touches on a little bit, all the way to the 19th century. And yet it's also detailed. It delves into you know, a number of specific moments, people, and texts. It covers things that are quite well known, like Ming uh, shipbuilding and the Zhenghe voyages, just to name you know, one particularly well-known uh, moment. And then some you know, much... Uh, less well-known and much more minor, at least in terms of global history, um, incidences and moments like minor transactions in forest deeds and wonderfully detailed accounts of the difficulty of imperial logging, uh, just to touch on a few things that I'm hoping we will get into later. But throughout all of this, um, and you brought us uh, halfway there already, uh, this book has a really clear central argument, which has to do with deforestation and China's own forms of forest oversight and in turn, uh, with how China's environmental history, at least it pertains to trees at least, has been told. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about this directly, Ian. You've already talked about uh, Mark Elvin, but building on that, uh, what does the field of China's environmental history sort of currently look like? And where is this book, uh, where do you see this book intervening and making an intervention? So the way that I understand um, the field of Chinese environmental history is actually coming out of, um, I, I think a lot of it in the early generations was influenced by the late imperial Jingshu scholarship, the, the sort of practical learning. And so there are some topics in that that um, come out a lot, especially related to borders and related to water conservancy that have been at the core of Chinese environmental history since it became a self-conscious discipline. Um, and I think that as Chinese environmental history is moving into a second or perhaps a third generation, there's a lot more attention being paid to some of the other um, concerns that we see in environmental history um, in other places. And so in particular, scholarship on animals, um, scholarship on forests, um, which is where my own intervention lies, um, and things like this. Um, but also there's been a move to better contextualize um, some of the, the detailed ways in which um, people are involved in sort of local and regional ecosystems and the transformation of landscapes um, in a way that goes beyond an analysis that's totally centered on the state, um, although that obviously comes up um, a lot um, in, in my work. And so one of the, I mean, I think that my big intervention here was in thinking about forests. Um, one of the things that is sort of, um, fundamental to how they function, um, ecologically is that they regrow. And so there was a tendency to sort of assume that when you have documentation of forests being cut, that that was sort of the end of it, right? That was the, the end of the story. Or if you had documentation of a sort of wasted landscape where the, the trees were gone, that that was the end of the story. Um, and instead, um, well, not instead, but in addition to that or complicating that picture is the fact that trees regrow um, both through self-seeding processes, but also because wood is just such an important resource, right? It's the principal building material. It's the principal fuel. Woods are a major source of famine foods and other secondary foods of fodder for animals, of fertilizer, um, of a whole bunch of chemical inputs. And so this is so important to, to pre-modern and in fact, even to modern um, economies that when the trees are gone, that's a big problem. And so people had to find a way to continue um, to supply themselves with wood and other forest resources. And so um, what we see in China, like in other places, is that when there were fears of, of wood shortage, 
Um, and in fact, fears of wood shortage tended to come on faster than actual critical wood shortage. People would step into that as um, either a government uh, a governmental necessity to uh, resupply, uh, to restock the woods, or as a commercial opportunity to make money because there is, you know, a consistent or even rising demand for wood and wood products, but the supply is falling, which means that you can make a lot of money by planting trees um, or by finding other sources of wood products. Um, and so um, thinking about that sort of through both, I guess, ecological dynamics and market dynamics um, was pretty key to the intervention that I wanted to make with this book. Perfect. I think you, you also, you touch on, and I'll just pull, I'll just pull this out here because this is something that struck me. Um, you also talk about a little bit about the, the change in periodization, uh, that, you know, this, the, the, um, the look that you have on China's, uh, forest history sort of brings to it. You sort of note that, uh, typically when China, Chinese history is periodized, we tend to think in terms of dynastic, uh, you know, we tend to think, think dynastically. Um, but you point out that this, you know, misses great continue continuations in the local administration of forests. Um, and you, and this is, relates back to your note about China's 19th century as well, right? You talk about the 19th century crisis uh, being uh, just one bookend, if you like, along with its 11th century crisis um, around uh, wood as well. So, and then in the middle there, you talk about there being a remarkably consistent uh, period of forest oversight and, you know, comparatively stable um, ecology, which again, uh, relates back to um, when you're talking about Mark Elvin's work, that this is a ra rather different way of seeing uh, this period of time. But thank you very much for for mentioning um, the you know the interventions that you that you picked out as well. Um, with that, then, does it make sense to talk about uh, the 11th century and this particular moment of crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it does. Um, the 11th century, or or more broadly. I think the Song is also a period that Elvin identifies as a turning point. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I'm very influenced by, um, by his scholarship and, um, and his suggestion of this, but I think that my takeaway from this um, in, in reading a little bit more deeply into what was going on in the 11th century is that this was a crisis that led to a new system of government governance rather than a crisis that led to this very, very long slope of, of, um, degradation. Um, so do you want me to go into some, some more detail on, on what was going on in the 11th century that I see as bringing on this crisis? Yeah, sure. I mean, why don't I touch on a little bit here, uh, what you sort of lay out in the book, um, just in terms of the, the shift from, um, uh, regulated abundance to this scarcity, uh, right? So this really comes into the first chapter of the book, uh, when, when you talk about how from the period of antiquity up until the 8th century, there is this idea, um, both borne out um, in the actual trees themselves, but one of regulated abundance. Uh, and you talk about how people seem to be prevented from over-harvesting uh, due to this sort of uh, endless natural bounty. Uh, and then in the song, there is a, a real concern, a real shift. And the solutions that people gravitate towards, solutions turned to by both the Song state and private entrepreneurs, are logging into new frontiers. And then the second, intensifying forest management, which leads to the planting of trees. And here, uh, you mean specifically the planting of trees for timber, not just fruit trees. Um, and so this, I wonder then with that, if you want to talk about this shift. And what I'm really curious about actually here is what this shift meant um, in terms of how people looked at and wrote about trees, uh, where does this sort of uh, play out in how people are thinking about uh, trees and forests? So um, I guess there are, well, so there are a few ways that we can see this shift emerging. Um, and, and the first is this sort of um, discourse 
surrounding shortages or anticipated shortages. Um, and I think the second is that there's a movement um, away from thinking about um, forests as basically these these sort of um, loosely defined spaces full of trees to thinking about them in more territorial terms. And um, initially, I think that there's actually some confusion over what exactly um, these new sort of territorialized definitions are going to look like. Um, But what we see concretely is that there's, um, there's a move from the forests um, as being in this loose category of um, sort of mountains and marshes, the shanza, um, which are these sort of um, common pool resources um, and which imply some degree of common access, but also of of very loose state oversight um, to thinking about um, forests as bounded I think first as bounded space and then eventually as property. Um, and this transition really hinges, I think, on an understanding of the labor inputs. Um, so in Tang law, um, forests are uh, common pool resources, but the trees that you cut down, the, the timber that you cut down are your property. Um, and so there's a way in which in around the 11th, um, 12th centuries, um, because the labor inputs um, move from simply logging to, in many cases, also planting trees, um, there's, there's now an implicit and in some cases increasingly explicit understanding that it's not just felled timber that can be treated as property, um, but there's also... Um, that, you know, the trees that you planted are your property. Um, there's also, there's another field in which we see a little bit of this transition in how people are thinking and talking about trees, uh, which has to do, and this doesn't fully come on until a little bit later, um, but there's a, a little bit of the mystique around forests is gradually lost. Um, so these uh, you know, forests and, and woodlands move from being these sort of wild, untamed spaces that are, um, you know, homes for uh, spirits and ghosts and gods and things like that to to being um, more tangible property and therefore um, part of the more profane um, realm of, of commercial transactions rather than this this more abstract and sacred realm. I don't know if that gets to to your question exactly. No, I think it definitely does. Um, I love I love thinking about the second part of what you said, though, about the shift uh, the shift from uh, trees as being you know uh, forests as being you know a place of um, of spirits and the unknown to being then something that is uh, you know knowable and the result of. Uh, I guess human planting then, right? I guess would also be involved in that sort of shift from the wild forest to something that is actually uh, man-made. Am I, am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it goes from being something where a lot of the forces are not provided by, by humans to one where, you know, there are human inputs and human influences, um, you know, through the entire life cycle of the trees. And so they become very familiar um, and um, and very tied up in the routine um, rather than having this mystique as something that's both sort of spatially outside the, hu- uh, you know, the area with human settlement, but also is governed by forces that are outside of human control. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
perfect. I love that you said that, you know, they, they moved to being something that's tied up in the routine. Um, because of course, trees that also become something that is tied up in not just routine, but in paperwork and in bureaucracies and in law. And, and this is really where uh, the next part of the book sort of takes over. Um, and uh, chapters two, three, four really look at what happens once trees become tied up in all of this routine, once tr trees become investments. Uh, so I'll just touch on a couple of the things that these chapters talk about. Uh, so chapter two, for example, boundaries, taxes, and property rights looks at the institutional framework that was built to support commercial timber plantations, because of course, without all this routine, without the state conducting surveys and centralized record keeping and formalizing laws that treated forests as property, uh, land, land owners would have had no incentive uh, to plant trees. Uh, chapter three, hunting households and sojourner families, looks at how the state regulated forest labor and how this uh, relates to labor levies. And one, I suppose, important thing to note here is that in the 15th century, officials began to substitute in-kind levies of goods and labor for cash payments, you know, a move that's related to an influx of silver into China and empire-wide tax reforms. And this, you know, uh, in terms of what it means for trees, then means that the state comes to intervene even less in how people, especially those on wooded fridges, manage their forests, and in turn led to a proliferation of different forms of contractual subordination when it comes to forest management, which you go on to explore in chapters, uh, chapter four, deeds, shares, and petty foggers. And this part of the book, among other things, looks at deeds and contracts as they pertain to forests. And one thing I just want to flag here that this chapter makes abundantly clear, at least to me, was that forest management was incredibly complicated, uh, made even more so because of the you know, slow multi-decade growth periods. Um, so you talk about some of the really complicated contracts that spelled things out, like highly, highly divided plot ownership of some of these forests. You, know, you mentioned plots split into like 700 some shares or <laughs> Um, even on the low end, 200-something shares of that these plots are divided into. So very complicated um, uh, papers and paperwork involved here. And there's a lot going on in, these, in this part of the book, and I've only just plucked out a couple of the bare highlights. Um, but rather than ask you to talk about the complications of forest tax, I wonder if you might talk about some of the sources that you draw on uh, for this part of the book or in the book on, on the whole. Uh, because you do also have an appendix in the book that talks about some of the sources and the digital methods uh, that you used in creating this book. So I wonder if there's anything you want to talk about uh, with that, and even if, if it does pertain uh, to these chapters in particular on the topic of sources. Sure. So these three chapters um, that you just summarized beautifully um, better than I could, in fact. Um, they mostly rely on sources from gazetteers and from uh, deeds and, and contracts. Um, and most of the deeds, are, in fact, are from, from Huizhou Prefecture. Um, and the way that I was able to find these, I think, is a little bit unusual. I don't know. So any project um, that that we do as historians, um, we have to find um, some sort of unifying subject of study that we then trace through the archives. And frequently that's a person or a group of people, or it's a place, or it's an event. And so what I realized I was gonna have to do for this project is basically follow a tree. And that tree is, you know, the China fir, Cunninghamia lanceolata, um, Shanmu or Shamu in, in Chinese. And um, so the thing that really helped me out here is that there's now a large and still growing corpus of digitized sources. And it turns out that um, doing a character search for, um, for Shan or Sha um, is very, very productive because um, it's, it's fairly specific. Um, a lot of the times when, you, um, when you're trying to figure out a search term, you end up with either only a fraction of the things that you want, um, so it's not general enough, it's not capturing everything that you want, 
or you end up with a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want. It's too general. It's too broad. Um, but this tree name actually turned out to be um, quite specific and to bring me into a whole bunch of places, um, some of which I anticipated ending up. Um, I, I love nerding out over the single whip reforms. Um, these are the reforms <laughs> that, um, that sort of transformed the labor service um, by substituting silver for a lot of um, goods or, or in-kind labor. Um, so I sort of knew that I was going to end up there, but it ended up taking me down a whole bunch of other places that I did not necessarily anticipate finding. Um, one of which um, I actually brings me into the next few chapters of the book, which which were on um, the, the tariff system. Um, and um, I don't know, maybe you want to talk about that later, but um, basically I, I knew nothing about this tariff system until fur kept popping up um, in these sections on tariffs um, across all these different gazetteers and and a bunch of other sources like like the Ming Huidian and and things like that. Um, and so this um, this search term um, for this tree actually brought me down a lot of of really interesting avenues and in some ways um, tells I mean I'm giving away my dirty secret here, but it tells the story of the book or at least <laughs> the research behind the book. Um, and I think actually, something that I haven't had a, a, enough time to look into in more detail, but it actually says something about the tradition of botanical knowledge making in, in China, that this term is so consistent um, and so specific. Um, and so that's something that I think is, is worth um, a little bit more thought and study. Um, and so that is what helped me um, sort of cover a lot of the tax materials. And I actually... While I was in Berlin at, at Max Planck, um, I spent a lot of time extracting um, tax data from the gazetteers um, with just you know banking characters swimming before my eyes. Um, I literally used to fall asleep and see banking characters behind um, my closed eyelids. Um, but um, it allowed me to, to really trace a lot of the, um, the movement of materials and movement of finances through especially the Ming fiscal system. Um, the, the Yuan and, um, and Song gazetteers are also interesting, are fascinating in another way, because they're still sort of figuring out how to consolidate this record keeping. Um, and so it's a lot messier and, and harder to figure out. Um, but then it also, I realized, and I was initially very resistant to this, but I realized I was going to have to dive into the contractual records to get the other side of this picture because the picture given by the tax records is really incredibly superficial. Um, all that the, um, the Song, Yuan, and Ming states really cared about was that these properties were registered and that they paid the tax. Um, and the land tax on forests was generally, although not always, um, relatively low. And, um, and so I, I don't think that they cared that much about them. Um, but the people who owned the forests and the people who worked the forests, um, obviously therefore had to figure out the other side of the management picture. And so I spent, um, oh, I don't know how many months just reading hundreds and hundreds of very, very formulaic land deeds. And, um, and that was a really interesting, um, experience and an interesting lesson because, one of the one of my takeaways from that is that even though it was very complicated, um, so so forestry brings a whole bunch of complications that you don't see in other land markets. Which, um, as I think we know in late imperial China, land markets are already complicated enough as it is, um, because you have um, you know the sort of the um, the skin rights and the subsoil rights or the surface rights and the subsoil rights are, are separated and there's different layers of tenancy and stuff like that. And you have all of that in forests, but you have the additional complication of almost everything being divided um, by into, into shares, some of which are like almost, almost infinitesimal fractions. Um, and then the fact that it takes under ideal conditions about 25 to 30 years for the investment to mature. Um, and so, but despite these complications, um, most of the deeds are incredibly brief. Um, 
which suggests that to the people working them, these details were so banal and, um, and so just every day that they didn't really need to note them. And what it also meant is that I really did need to take to pay attention to what they were noting, because if they were writing it down, it meant it was important. Um, and I, I don't think it just meant that it was important. It meant that it was important to have written down, um, which in particular tended to mean things that had to do with land title um, and claims to land title and with claims on the investments when the trees matured. Um, so I, I think I maybe went into too much of those those details, but um, but I think that that's actually where the real heart of this story is, um, is these, these people um, on the ground trying to figure out how they are going to deal with the novel risks as well as the substantial profits um, that they could attain from working forests, especially timber forests. Um, and as you mentioned uh, a minute ago, because the state was so removed from oversight, um, I think it was quite removed from land oversight from pretty much the 12th century, um, aside from basic land registration details um, or disputes that made it into the courts. And after the single whip reforms, it was actually quite removed from labor oversight as, as well. And so that meant that all these details had to be worked out contractually um, between the parties that were working the forests. You said that you think that um, that it's sort of the heart of this, right? These fine details. Um, and I, I think that definitely comes through uh, in the book itself uh, with all the details about these regulations and uh, the laws that go all of all of that detail, that fine detail, which, as you said, uh, definitely mattered quite a bit to the, the people involved, right? Those who owned a very, very, very small portion of uh, some of the forests are that you're looking at and, you know, that were prepared to wait 25 years for a return on their investment. Um, yeah, that's one of, uh, one of my parts of the book that I definitely enjoyed the most. And I definitely think that it should uh, be taken as sort of uh, clearly you know, a moment where you'd clearly know that you've made it when you're falling asleep and banking characters are on the back of your eyelids in Berlin. That's that's clearly got to be the new mark of this is when you know <laughs> that you're doing research. You know, I think it takes a certain sort of historian. I mean, I realized that like the things that I study, like these these incredibly routine like deeds and um, and low level regulations and stuff like that is something that like if I encountered it in my day to day life. I would find <laughs> just be an enormous pain. But when I find it in my research, like my eyes light up and it's just like, <laughs> yes, this is what I want to spend the next 12 hours on. You know, it's, uh... yes. do, do you personally want to fill out the, the contracts about, you know, uh, I don't know, owning some very, 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 very infinitesimally small share of a, of a forest uh, in your actual life? Maybe not so much, but... Um, working through those contracts in the Ming, I guess it would be an entirely different um, situation. Well, and but one of the things that we can see is that, you know, what I, I think one of the reasons, to some degree, this, this argument comes from some things that Joseph McDermott figured out um, in, in his um, book. But these, these are clearly abstract investments by the point that you're investing in a one two hundredth share of a forest. And so what that means is that most of the people who own those very small fractional shares own shares in a whole bunch of different properties. Um, and that makes sense as a risk management um, strategy. It also makes sense because um, you know there was not like a stock market back then where when you need your money, you just sell a few shares of you know your 401k or whatever. When you need money and the trees are still young, there's nothing you can do about it. Except that they found a way to do something about it by being able to cash out those shares early or by investing in, in properties where the trees would mature at different times. Um, and so I, I think it was just, I mean, it's really, really fascinating. And it makes a huge amount of sense that this type of futures market would develop in this particular arena because it's, it's precisely what was needed to manage these investments that don't mature for such a long time. But, you know, um, going back to what you were saying before, 
it's the type of thing that in my day-to-day life, I don't want to manage that. And so you have to figure that there must have been people who were specializing in managing the financial aspects of this, who were not necessarily the same people planting the trees. Like certainly by the time you get to around the 1560s, certainly by 1600, this is just too complicated. And it's so far removed from this actual business of like afforestation or logging or what have you. Mm-hmm. So with that, think, you know, thinking about things that uh, you might not want to engage with in your day-to-day life or that you certainly don't engage with in your day-to-day life, why don't we move to talking about tariffs? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a sick way to bring us uh, into the next part of the book, uh, chapters five and six. And these two chapters, I'll just uh, outline this a little bit. These, as a unit, look at the connection between wood markets and maritime activity. Um, and these are, you know, on their own terms, fascinating chapters. Um, and I can imagine that chapter six is going to be of particular interest to people, uh, which looks at Chinese maritime exploits. But uniquely, and this goes kind of uh, back to what you were saying much, much earlier um, about embedding, uh, you know, specific moments in their context, this section of the book um, embeds Chinese maritime exploits into their material and institutional constraints. And also, I think a little bit uniquely, argues that Ming shipbuilding um, appears to have been quite sustainable. And I should also note that these chapters are where the comparative element is particularly strong, I guess. It comes through a little bit more, um, especially when you touch on how uh, Chinese sea power and you know fleet construction uh, compared to that of other, uh, other powers. So there's a lot in the maritime, you know, the more explicitly maritime chapter, uh, but you flagged tariffs as something that you were particularly interested in because, as you said, you knew nothing about it going in. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you found out about tariffs then uh, in this, in, you know, in thinking about this part of the book. So this is, like I said, this is not even something that I was looking for. Um, and what I found is that tariffs on timber in particular, timber and other bulky materials are this point of just incredible continuity. Um, I I think they start something like in the late 8th century, the 9th century, something like that in the wake of the Anlushan rebellions, although I'm not entirely sure how they worked in the late Tang. But by the Song, um, and by like the very founding of the Song, this is a major source of timber and other um, structural materials. And it continues to be a major source of structural materials all the way through um, the Yuan, all the way through the Ming, and well into the Qing, which is not you know, at the core of my book. Um, but um, Meng Zhang has done some really great work on that. And, and they can, you know, the timber tariffs absolutely continue um, into the 18th and, and I think believe the 19th centuries as well. Um, and so this was just astonishing to me because it was something that I knew not very much about. Um, but the thing that was really um, that was really cool to find out is that the different um, states use these tariffs um, in somewhat different ways. Um, so the the song was actually very, especially the southern song, was very clever about adjusting the tariff rates to encourage um, imports at times when when rebuilding was needed. Um, so basically, to encourage um, merchants to flood the market with cheap timber um, after fires or things like that. Um, but to raise revenue at other times. Um, In the Ming, the the tariff levels were actually quite low on timber, um, especially on fir timber, Um, but they they were largely intended um, as a more or less direct supply of building timber for the shipyards. And um, there is this really, really fascinating nexus that develops, um, especially around Nanjing, where um, the shipyards and the tariff um, bureau uh, are communicating with each other to share standards um, for timber sizes and and things like this. And um, it's because the main use of the timber that was taxed at at Nanjing, which is one of the major places where timber was offloaded from the Yangtze River interior, was to go directly into the shipbuilding projects. and this was just um, really, really interesting to me because the story that we have from, from Europe um, in particular is that the need to find shipbuilding timber was precisely what drove 
a number of European states into territorial forestry, that is into controlling forests directly um, and governing the production of, of, um, of trees and timber. Um, with, with Venice being a particularly early case of this, um, but this is what's behind, um, you know, the, the famous ordinances um, on, on water and forests by uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert in France. Um, there's a substantial program in Spain. This is what sends um, British surveyors into North America um, to, uh, to draw the King's Broad Arrow on white pine trees um, is to supply the Navy. But the, the Chinese states are not doing that because they don't need to. Um, there are, you know, a few exceptional periods when there is some state-directed logging going on, especially for mass timber, as I understand it. But for the most part, um, they are able to derive enough timber either directly from, from the tariff or from purchasing merchant timber using tariff revenue from other goods that the shipyards... Um, and the need for timber for the shipyards did not drive um, the Song or Ming states to um, do substantial forest surveys or focus on claiming particular species of trees or anything like that. And I intentionally left out the UN because it really is something of an exception. Um, but um, especially during the reign of Kublai Khan, um, and, and the reign of, of the Emperor Yongle is another exception. There clearly was some um, state-supervised logging being done to build the, you know, the famous treasure ships and the other ships um, in the South Seas fleets. But you know, more generally speaking, compared to the European context, they just did not have to invest um, very much energy into territorial forestry because the commercial forestry markets were so productive that they could basically just sit on the river and wait for the rafts, to, the log rafts to come. And um, uh, that was just astounding to me. And I think a really interesting point of comparison. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, to go back to sort of what we were talking about right in the beginning about these, uh, about this, again, this book is not uh, a comparison throughout, but it definitely has these really useful and illuminating moments, I think, of comparison. And this is definitely... Definitely a, a part of the book that does that and has those moments. So you mentioned there, you know, in thinking about um, imperial uh, imperial logging, and you know, in, when it comes to these chapters, you know, the the need, uh, you know, the absence of a need to do it, as you said, they could just sit on the river and wait uh, for uh, for the for the rafts, I guess, the barges to come up. Um, and this is slightly different, at least at the slightly different focus than when we come to the last part of the book, uh, Beijing Palaces and the End of Empire. And this chapter, you know, unlike uh, with the shipbuilding, um, this chapter looks at the greatest pressure placed on the logging frontier, which is architecture. So mu much of this chapter looks at the, um, the acquisition of timber and the need for timber uh, for construction for the construction and then reconstruction of Beijing, a project that, as you say in the book, led to the last and greatest uh, official logging operations in South China, a project that spelled the final decline of old growth woodlands. And this part of the book covers three booms in imperial logging, one in the late uh, 1400s, the mid to late 1500s, and the late 1600s, after which, or at least from the early 1500s onwards, uh, officials start to note that the hills are looking a little bare and lumber teams have to push deeper into the mountains uh, to find poles and beams and wood trees of sufficient size. So there's definitely, a, you know, the beginnings of a decline in timber yields, if not total uh, deforestation. And this is probably my favorite, like, singular chapter of the book, in part because you just have some fabulous descriptions of the, the difficulty of getting logs from the south. Uh, you have sections from uh, woodblock illustrations of this process. And you mention a bus station that is still named Imperial Lumber Depot, which I think I, was just too fabulous a detail for me not to mention. Um, and through all of this, you know, uh, that because you're talking about um, logging on the frontier, the edge of the Ming Empire really here. Uh, so you talk about native officials and non, 
uh, Han logging teams. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk actually about this directly, um, because here really we see the intersection of fur and empire, um, the two cores of the title. Uh, so what is actually really meaningful um, about this intersection of the trees and the empire here? How is the fact that they are on the edge of empire uh, shape the imperial logging projects um, as you see them in this part of the book? So the way that I understand it, really the only reason that the Ming needed to involve itself in these logging projects was because they had a demand, a very particular demand for these incredibly large timbers, um, which were used in palace construction. And I just have to say, you know, if you want to read a really um, interesting look at the architectural side of this, I, I have to give a shout out to Aurelia Campbell's um, new book, What the Emperor Built. Um, Aurelia and I actually worked on this a little bit together when we were at Max Planck. And, um, but it's this very particular need. And so it's precisely the trends that I describe in the rest of the book that lead to the production of commodity timber, which is of a certain size that means that most of the rest of the empire does not have these massive trees that are needed for pillars and beams. And so, like you said, the only place that they are able to find it is on the margins of where Ming control actually reaches. And um, one of the, the fascinating things about this area is that there was this very long-term, um, fairly explicit understanding that Han loggers would not go into the mountains in the Southwest. In fact, um, in the Song, there was briefly actually a period when there was a chain stretched across the river. And so the non-Han loggers were not supposed to go below the chain. They, you know, they would float their logs down and they would be stopped by the chain and the, the Han merchants were not supposed to go above it. And so what this had done is it preserved for hundreds of years, these old growth forests, which had trees that were big enough for the Imperial project. But because they're in this place where you know, the sinews of imperial power are stretched to their limits. Um, it was just incredibly difficult in a number of ways. Um, you know, there are, there are relatively few records from the Yongle period, which is when um, there must have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these massive timbers cut principally from, from Sichuan, from Southern Sichuan. Um, and, uh, but when, Officials returned to the region in the 16th century um, because of a series of fires that meant that they needed to rebuild the palaces. They just found every aspect of the project difficult. Uh, negotiations with, <laughs> I mean, it was just unbelievable what they were doing to rebuild these stupid buildings. It's, it's just like um, they, they ran short of, short of food. They ran short of money. Um, there are these sayings that like, I don't know how exaggerated they are, but like half of the, the workers who go into the hills die. Um, everybody's getting malaria. They're being attacked um, by, by non-Han tribes. Um, again, I, I suspect some exaggeration, but there are even pictures of them like being attacked by snakes and tigers. Um, and, um, and even when there were not these extraordinary circumstances, you know, uh, attacks or disease or, um, or starvation or what have you, even when the supplies arrived and the money arrived on time, it was incredibly difficult because the easiest, um, the most accessible trees had already been cut in earlier periods and they don't just reappear on demand, right? Th these giant timbers didn't grow in 30 years or 40 or 50 years like commodity timber grown in the rest of South China, it would take hundreds of years for them to reach these dimensions. And so it's only deep in the mountains that they were able to find these. And so there were just enormous engineering difficulties on top of everything else. They had to build slip roads. Um, there are these giant capstans um, used to haul logs up slopes. Um, they built these temporary bridges called flying bridges um, to, to transport them across gorges. Then they had to ship, they had to float them down through rapids. Um, and, um, 
And then, I mean, the, the really astonishing thing is that something like um, 80 or 90% of the, the trees that they cut, at least according to some of these sources, were not suitable for construction purposes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Um, but the, the, the level of detail here is also because this is the one place where the Ming bureaucracy is really deeply and heavily involved in territorial forestry, in finding trees, in mapping where they are, in figuring out how to get them from where they're growing to the waterways where they can be floated. Oh, the other thing is that the trees are so heavy is that they ha- that they have to attach hundreds of poles of bamboo just to for, for buoyancy. <laughs> um, it, just the engineer, the, the level of, of engineering problems they had to overcome to get these trees out of the gorges of, of southern Sichuan and northern Guizhou is just unbelievable. And then on top of things, there was this really interesting gift economy, or I mean, it's sort of framed as a gift economy where the, the native, um, the native officials of the region, um, would present timber to the emperor. And then the emperor would gift them with, um, with robes and, and other stuff. Um, right. And so it's sort of like framed through this this language of the tribute system, but it's actually clear if you look deep enough into the documents that they're basically selling these giant timber because there's, you know, there's a lot um, of both money and prestige that can be obtained from this. And they clearly cared enormously about the prestige bit as well. Um, you know, it's this, this coveted, um, it's often translated as the flying fish robe, but I, th- I think it's actually more like a, a dragon um, if you look at the pictures of it, but they're just, um, these, um, these native, um, officials are just falling over themselves. And I think literally fighting with each other to, to get these last accessible stands of old growth timber so that they can get this really cool robe that shows that they're the most important (laughs) official in the Southwest, right? They're they're the most important ruler in the Southwest. Um, and you know, there's not, there's not a, um, a smoking gun for this, but I suspect that um, that this competition over this these last major stands of old growth was behind some of these wars um, between the the native officials in this region, um, and including the Bojo Rebellion, which um, which is um, you know leads to this this massive um, suppression on the part of the Ming. Um, I learned somewhere that um that there were actually like japanese samurai um who had been captured during the imjin war who were sent to suppress the bojo rebellion which is just a fascinating detail that i somehow didn't manage i don't think to put in the book and i should have um but um but this war this this bojo rebellion seems to be at least in part over the you know the claims competing claims to these last stands of old growth timber um, and and the ability to present them to the Ming state in exchange for substantial amounts of of cash, and, as well as um, this sort of claim to fame as um, you know as the the Daming Ding Ding of the Southwest. <laughs> I don't remember that detail from the book, but I will go back, and if it is in there, Ian, I will find it um, because that's a fabulous. Of detail if it didn't make it in. In I'm, the second I'm, edition, I'm, maybe. <laughs> in the se- I will look for it in the second yeah. edition when that gets uh, when that gets put in. But I think all of what you sort of the picture you sort of painted there just really does build a picture of the incredible amount of prestige that was associated with this, right? Even um, as you said, the wars were fought over it even after all of the di- the actual um, engineering difficulties of getting these huge trees. Um, out of where they were, um, you know, after all of that, um, or on top of all of that, having to fight, uh, go to go to go to war, uh, to jostle even over just over the ability to present them, um, is a fascinating story, and I feel very justified in my you know declaration that this is probably my favorite chapter <laughs> of the book. Uh, but now that we're sort of here with this chapter of the book, we're at the end of the book. Um, and also at the end of our conversation. Um, so with this, Ian, thank you so much for, you know, talking about 
for writing the book and the first of all for spending all of those hours falling asleep in Berlin with the characters on the back of your eyelids, all of that, <laughs> then writing the book and talking to me about it. But Ian, now that you're finished with our conversation and this book as well, uh, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you now? In, you know, in addition to writing the second edition where uh, <laughs> the story, as you said, of the samurai will be there yes. in, you know, front and foremost, yes. of course. Um, so, so, um, I think the first thing on my plate is probably to return to this story of, um, lineage, uh, and environmental history. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was getting at in my dissertation is that, um, you know, aside from all these, these high level institutions at the very local level, it is largely lineage organizations um, that are making decisions about um, how to intervene in the landscape. And um, this is because, you know, of the ownership through lineage trusts of large amounts of farmland and forest land. Um, but it's also in large part through lineage rules um, and the, the use of litigation to protect lineage rights to things like grave sites and temples um, and the development of more clearly articulated rules for who has access to these common pool resources. And so, you know, one of the stories that I, I think is told that, that I think I tell in, in Foreign Empire is really a story about the enclosure of the commons. So there were these forests that were common pool resources and they're increasingly privatized. Um, they're increasingly controlled by individual landlords. So how are some of these resources maintained as common pool resources? And how are some of them maintained as um, sort of protected lands? So that is probably the next thing that, um, that I'm gonna put a lot of time um, and thought into. The other thing that I am just obsessed with at the moment is some of the broader implications of um, gift exchange through what's sometimes called the tribute system. I think that's now increasingly considered a problematic term for it. Um, and there's been some really interesting work on this, um, a lot of really interesting work on this. Uh, but one of the, the key things to me is that this is... Um, at its heart, an ex a material exchange. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in exploring some of the broader implications of this, um, especially in the Southwest, um, but also in some of these other areas, um, ringing the empire um, and, uh, and thinking a little bit more about what happens in these exchanges across um, these barriers that have been very intentionally erected between different ecological zones, between different ethnic groups, and between different forms of rulership and stuff like that. Um, so that's a you know a longer term thing that I'm thinking about. I think those both sound like fascinating projects to you know direct all of your time <laughs> and attention to now. Um, so very much look forward to you know hearing and reading more about both of those. Um, in the future, they sound like great, you know, I can definitely see the continuations or the the offshoot makes it sound like they are somehow derivative. And that's not what I mean. I mean, continuations of off from this project in particular. Um, so best of luck with those. Again, look very much looking forward to reading and hearing more about them in the future. Um, and thank you again so much, Ian, for, for taking the time to talk about this project um, <laughs> and this work uh, with me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. Um, it's really been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, and thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs>